Hi there, and welcome to the Fantasy Animation Podcasts with your hosts Alex Sargent and Chris Holliday. We are two researchers working in universities. Uh, I work at the University of Bournemouth, uh, lecturing in film and media theory, and specialising in the history and theory of fantasy cinema. And I work at King's College in London in uh, the Liberal Arts and Film Studies departments and I've recently uh, just published a book on the computer animated feature film and I'm very much interested in both kind of animation history more broadly as well as contemporary digital media. And together we're co-founders of a uh, little website called Fantasy Animation, a research network that seeks to bring all kinds of people together to talk about the relationship between fantasy cinema and fantasy media uh, and animation. The origins for the network came out of a series of events that myself and Alex visited um, that seemed to map out some of the overlying tensions and kind of points of continuity between fantasy uh, and animation. And it, and it struck us that there was no space or there was no sort of discussion forum in which fantasy scholars and or animation scholars um, could kind of come together and, and speak about where their research interests or perhaps uh, particularly a examples of media from TV to, to kind of long-form animated television series where they sort of might be speaking to fantasy as much as speaking to their animated identities. Yeah, it's, people tended to either sort of do an and or an or. So they would either talk about um, how something is both a fantasy animation as two separate things, or they might just sort of pick one of them and, and highlight that over the other. So for example, there's lots of filmmakers from previous uh, history, things like uh, Georges Méliès you might have, or indeed someone we're going to get to today called Walt Disney, you may have heard of him, uh, who people talked about either as animation animators or as adapters or fantasy filmmakers and we're kind of interested in what happens if you try and talk about them both at the same time. So what we kind of came up with was this notion of the slash that separates uh, fantasy animation within the research network but also um, our recent book Fantasy Animation. That slash we sort of see not as a kind of fixed or immobile divide, but something that's very fluid and, and, and allows fantasy and animation to talk to each other, to present a series of research questions that we felt weren't served directly by fantasy and or animation, but instead could be conceived of as examples or questions that would um, be responded, responsive to kind of questions of fantasy animation, fantasy slash animation. So um, the slash we think is really important in, in thinking about where fantasy and animation might collide and intersect. Yeah, so two important things there. One, we're big fans of having a slash on this podcast. Uh, and two, uh, we're big fans of bringing those two things into a nice dialogue together. And we'd like to extend that to invitation to basically anyone that's listening. So yes, if you're an academic, please get in contact with us via our website. But actually, if you're just a big fan of one or the other, if you belong to a fan club or a set of uh, networks, if you're a maker and you're interested in talking about these questions, basically, if you are interested in the stuff that we're interested in, we'd love to hear from you because we really believe that the more people involved in the conversation, the better the conversation we'll have. And that's what we're here to do today, actually. We're going to have a conversation about particular uh, film. We're going to sort of do a sort of audio commentary slash uh, discussion of a particular example of what we'll call fantasy animation and see what we can do by putting our two supposed expertise together um, about a particular topic. What have we got today, Chris? Well, for the first or the inaugural fantasy animation podcast, we have gone for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. So this is hopefully a film that many uh, listeners will have heard of, will have seen, um, but it's something that we 
Bell almost immediately raised questions about the fantasy animation intersection. And so having recently watched it again, we, we're sort of thinking about uh, where we might see fantasy, where we might see animation, and where we might see moments where fantasy and animation can kind of talk talk to each other. So we're going to hopefully today take you through some kind of key moments, key scenes, um, key instances where fantasy slash animation are perhaps uh, at their most visible. So sit back and listen to um, the two of us waffle on for a little bit about Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. If you dig, dig, dig with a shovel or a pick. In a mine, in a mine, in a mine, in a mine, where a million diamonds shine. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, it's home from work we go. Right, so that's uh, a clip there from Disney's first feature-length uh, animation. In fact, I noticed in the title sequence we watched earlier today, um, a Walt Disney feature production is the first thing you're greeted of when this movie switches on. Uh, I guess we should start by talking about the movie, setting it up for everybody. Uh, Chris, why don't you start? Why don't you tell us uh, what you think is interesting about this movie in terms of its place within animation history or, or the way it's talked about at, in your circle of animation studies? Yes, well, certainly as the kind of first feature-length cell animated film produced by the Walt Disney Studios, um, I think the film inevitably or perhaps um, intrinsically uh, is is sort of placed as a, as a landmark within broader um, animation studies, whether this is kind of the US um, uh, animation industry, and certainly it's central to the consolidation of, uh, of animation as an industrial art form. And this is in, in kind of part, no thanks to Walt Disney, who up until this point had been making a series of short films, The Silly Symphonies, that were really test spaces to, to think about um, animation and its relationship to a series of technologies, whether this might be colour, whether this might be kind of particular kind of camera apparatus, um, and specifically sound. And so this film is interesting because it sort of brings together lots of these um, experiments that were going on within this series of Silly Symphonies films that ran between 1929 and 1939. So this is sort of Snow White is towards the back end of the Silly Symphonies. Um, and it really sort of, I think, brings almost immediately questions of, of animated technology. And yeah, I think within the, the broader history of animation studies, it's sort of seen as a, a as a landmark, and rightly so. Uh, within the narrower studies of Disney studies, it, it um, established a template from which arguably Disney feature animation has seldom deviated. So a lot of the key components, lots of er elements of the so-called uh, narrative or uh, thematic stylistic formula are in place. Uh, and also, I think, outside of the cinema auditorium, it's been re-released on multiple occasions and was the first video in the Walt Disney's Masterpiece Collection. So I think there's lots going on both within international film history more broadly uh, and animation studies um, that's kind of connected to that and it's recently celebrated its 80th anniversary so it's a, a real prime candidate with which to kick off the fantasy uh, animation podcast. Great, so lots of interesting issues of technology um, and uh, the level of sophistication and the Disney model, I'm sure we're going to talk about that, we're going to Disneyfy things a little bit. From my perspective, uh, this is an interesting film in terms of its adaptation of fairy tales. It's perhaps the most well-known adaptation of the Snow White legend that exists. In fact, 
I would argue, I think a lot of scholars would argue it is the most well-known and the most culturally ubiquitous. And I think that's often where Disney feature animation is placed within fantasy studies. It's seen as uh, the most popular proponents of popular fairy tales, probably of the 20th century and to today. I suspect if people know the stories of, of the Grimm's, if they know of these fairy tales, they know it largely through their first encounter th with the Disney versions of these stories. So there's a lot of debate of the discussion over sort of the, the, the legacy of Disney in, in what they did to adapt the original Grimm fairy tale um, and the changes they might have made and all this kind of stuff which we, we can get into. Um, which lends itself open to a number of different questions about should they adapt it this way, what are the ideological implications of doing it, so I'm sure we'll talk about Snow White and, and the figure of her and how she's sort of embellished and used in the sh uh, in the film itself uh, and all other things. So I guess we'll, um, we'll kick off by sort of going through the film beat by beat and sharing our thoughts on it. What did you make of the film just sort of on a sort of punter level watching it this time, Chris? Well, <laughs> I mean, even though it's a slightly short uh, film than, than perhaps more contemporary Disney. Yeah, what's the length? It's, um... it's about between 75 and 80 minutes. Okay. So it's not, it's not too long. It's, it's certainly on the short side for Disney feature animation. Um, and what struck me, I think, this time, and obviously with my fantasy animation hat on, I was thinking about the visibility of fantasy. I was thinking about the visibility of animation. And um, what struck me was that not a lot really happens. There are some <laughs> kind of key moments within the film across its sort of uh, running time where I would call them kind of set, yeah, set pieces, the kind of familiar familiar moments of a, of, of a Disney animated feature film where you have, I guess, landmark scenes or scenes that have been widely parodied and so forth. But actually, when you when you boil the film down, it's, it's a very sort of... Uh, I don't know, short or an economical narrative structure where a lot of uh, the moments are augmented or supported by the visibility of animation and and certainly the music. I think the ro role of music, and I, I jotted a little note down about where do we see the fantasy in the film and, and what, what does fantasy look like within the context of, of Disney feature animation. And so hopefully we'll get, get to talk a little bit about the music and whether it's actually the musical numbers where we see fantasy perhaps that it's it's most sort of explicit but yeah i mean it's it is it is what it is it's a, it's certainly a landmark in, in animated feature filmmaking and there's always something to um i sound like i'm working for disney but there's always something to, <laughs> there's always something to enjoy when it comes to, to disney feature animation and certainly snow white it is it's no different but hopefully we'll be able to pick out a, yeah. a few threads and a few currents um that are perhaps more directly related to, to animation's relationship to fantasy. I um, I found it a bit plodding too. I found it both too long and too short at the same time. Yes. Um, and I was thinking about that with my hat on. Um, and I think it's got something to do with the, the process of adaptating, of, of adaptating is not a word that I knew existed until three seconds ago, um, of adapting the grim story. This is a movie for me of embellishment. Like almost all the set pieces are embellishments to the narrative. And actually the narrative itself, which in the original sort of version, the oral folktale version, is only about a couple of hundred um, words long, um, is told very briskly. Um, it's the stuff in between that the film pauses on. Yeah, We get endless sequences of sort of the domestic home of the dwarfs and, and little moments where they're required to sort of do tiny inconsequential things. But that's what the film sort of seems most comfortable doing. I think it's interesting about that. It actually reminded me that fairy tales are very often used in this way right back to sort of very early cinema practice. Fairy tales were often used as a way of demonstrating uh, other things because uh, filmmakers would rely on the 
the assumed familiarity people had with the original story. They didn't have to necessarily worry about telling the story. They could worry instead about embellishing it through tricks and all manner of sort of cinematic uh, trickery. Uh, to me, it felt like a movie doing that, using the sort of template structure of the fairy tale to basically do whatever else it wants with that structure. And I, I think what it does as well as is probably key to what we're going to try and pick apart here a little bit. Well, I think clearly that that sort of all those sets of relationships that you're you're speaking about is is enacted right at the start. So almost immediately when you have the opening of the, the kind of standard fairy tale um, storybook that opens, crucially I think in live action, so you see a live action storybook that opens, then you have a bit of sort of exposition uh, and certainly the film I think is paying a debt to sort of preceding silent cinema with the use of intertitles that here take the form of pages within a book and then straight away you're sort of in, into the book and into the animation and so um, this sort of fantasy animation relationship that, that we're going to hope, hopefully develop further over the, over the course of this, this podcast and beyond is sort of mapped out quite nicely within the, the first two scenes of the film. You have the sort of fantasy or the fantastic component that is anchored to the book and then the first shot of the film proper, if you like, is, is a sequence that is fleshing out animation for me it certainly is an animation scholar so the movement of the camera towards the castle suddenly introducing a, a sort of different spatial orientation that that suddenly the, the film is is in that moment experimenting with new possibilities in animation technology so what struck me about the first two sort of scenes of the film really the shift from the book slash castle <laughs> is that i see what you did there is <laughs> the fantasy slash animation kind of uh, relationship that 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 sort of is then played out across the course of the film. That's really interesting. I wanted to talk about the storybook opening a little bit. I'm obsessed with it, really. Um, and for me, I want to talk about it because to, it mirrors the structure of a fairy tale very nicely. Fairy tales are incredibly economically told, often, or at least the form we have. Um, fairy tales were once oral tales, and they've been written down in various different collections. Uh, the most famous example of this tale comes from the Grimm's. As I say, it's only about 300, 400 words long, um, and it's full of sentences like the ones in this storybook opening. So things like, and I jotted them down, um, a lovely little princess and a vain and wicked queen. And it's really interesting because those sentences do a lot in terms of the storytelling. They establish character straight on. The princess is defined as these traits from then on, and the queen is defining this trait. It's stereotypical, it's using uh, broad stroke char characterization, it's archetypal, um, but that's the point because oral folk stories are to be told between people. They're passed down, they're easily translatable. So the point of the story is to take it, embellish it. Um, so I see the animation moment, it's almost like Disney's announcement of right now we're going to embellish this. Mm. You've had the story. Now let's decorate it. Let's let's um, animate it, for want of a better word. Right? So the animation here is kind of colouring in the fantasy, that you have this sort of literary tradition or, or certainly a folk tradition where the fantasy is kind of placed on screen via text and then and then it's it's sort of the job of the animation to, to colour the fantasy or to, as you say, embellish the fantasy. Yeah. Which is interesting because it immediately sets up this sort of dichotomy between narrative and visual. Yeah. The narrative is the stuff to be told and sort of get out of the way and then let's have some fun with 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 the process of embellishment. And I think that that's sort of a, a, a common theme throughout the, the, the film, from my perspective. It doesn't do a lot of storytelling through the animation. It's much more interesting, or much more interested, I should say, in uh, in playing with the sort of narrative spaces that the, narr that the, the plot opens up. 
I mean, it would be remiss at this point to not return to your comment about your obsession with the storybook. Yeah. And actually, I wonder whether... I mean, is this true? Are we, we're obviously anchoring it particularly to Snow White here today, but I'm wondering, it's obviously a recurrent feature, and but not so much today. It's, it doesn't serve the same purpose. I wonder if it could serve the same purpose. I'm yeah. wondering what its job here in, in this first feature film is, is whether to, I don't know whether it kind of legitimizes what Disney are doing. It's sort of by flagging up the literary tradition sure. or I mean I, I don't know it's, it's, no, it's, it's sort right. of giving words is it giving words and credence to images and, and, and certainly a series of images that audiences perhaps wouldn't have seen and certainly wouldn't have seen over the course of 75 minutes but a story that they already know yeah and that's I think the interesting balance there going on so yes we get this storybook open uh, we get the characters established we get the basic plot established and that doesn't change to the rest of the movie and then then we sort of open up on the queen the magic mirror sequence yeah. um, uh, struck me this time this is probably a tenuous link but the magic mirror face to me looks exactly like the face of Oz in The Wizard of Oz, which just interestingly, as a bit of trivia, came about 18 months after this and was pretty much MGM's answer to uh, Snow White. It was MGM's live action answer to Snow White. I'm sure that's a coincidence, but it struck me as, as noteworthy. Um, and we get this magic mirror sequence. We get the mirror, mirror on the wall bit. Um, and then we transition into the introduction of Snow White. Yes. We get her cleaning the scullery and we get a scene that neither of us remembered no. uh, from having watched it before where Snow White basically announces herself as a character. So there's, I mean, I think, and this all happens within 10 minutes, you know, yep. there's, there, and maybe not even that. So uh, as you said, there, it was a scene that, that I'm convinced didn't exist, doesn't exist, and that we're now watching Disney's director's cut in some way. However, um, <laughs> I think, up, yeah, up until that point, there is there is a lot going on that's sort of worth worth picking out. As I said, once we once we get from the storybook to the the sort of animation uh, and the a, a moment that's really speaking to the pioneering work of the multiplane camera and the cameras, it moves towards through so multiple layers. Just pause you there, Chris, for, for us non-animation folk. What's the multiplane camera? So the multiplane camera is ostensibly a, a vertically constructed camera with a series of planes of action so m mostly multiple levels of backgrounds with the camera positioned at the top and then ultimately the camera would then move through very much like uh, the organization of space within the theater foreground middle ground series of middle grounds and then background and then backdrop uh, and what the camera and this happens a lot one of the things I, I noted down when watching the film is the role of movement whether it's dance but actually it's characters running from one place to another through through somewhere the animals running back to the mine to then run back to the to the house the the, the queen running up to the rocks towards the end um, snow white running through the forest there's lots of, of kind of emphasis on directional movement and i don't think that is limited to the characters i think it's limited to the the technology that's used to present the characters so a camera that moves through the woods and, and actually the movement um, through the woods is really important as a, a sort of ongoing motif given that we are deep into the woods both through our characters but but as a spectator um, but it's not just you know it's, it's the it's the I guess the emphasis on realism Disney at this point moving away from some of the flexibilities and, and fluency and, and manipulations of form pioneered really in the silly symphonies towards a more sort of quote-unquote hyper-realist agenda where things are a lot more or so sort of uh, the images the icons are driven a lot more by underlying degrees of naturalism so the multi-plane glamour is something developed and honed largely within the confines of the Disney studio that's used to amplify the sense of realism 
towards animated cartoons and, and it's something that really comes to a head in something like Bambi where there is a real discourse or, or aesthetic choice to move towards towards naturalism. That's, that's really interesting. So what we've got here in these opening moments are a naturalistic yeah. image, for want of a better word, of a fairy tale. Yes. Uh, and I think and that, and that, yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. sort of interplay between realism and fantasy is is sort of the foundation of, of, of the film. As you move through the film, there's lots of uh, of moments where fantasy is presumed to exist, but then but then doesn't. So there's lots of emphasis on looking, and when and when Dopey is sort of dressed up accidentally as this this monster because he's covered in pots and pans, and the, the other dwarves think that he is the monster that has has infiltrated their cottage. It's actually just revealed to be to be um, dopey. So there's uh, the role the role of fantasy. It is it is based on a, uh, a fairy tale. It is then qualified through quote unquote realistic animation. But then fantasy does does rear its head up at certain moments. Yeah, that's interesting. I've got a lot to say. I think I've got a lot to say about Dopey. I'm not sure all of it. <laughs> I think Dopey is a is a is quite a fascinating character uh, in many ways. Some almost Chaucerian in his uh, complexity. But um but sticking on the introduction of Snow White yes. The classic line, at least from from the stuff I read on Snow White, is that what Disney have done here, if they've taken a character that basically doesn't have a lot of these feminine traits in the original tale, she's barely got any traits in the original tale, I don't think she even speaks in the original Grimm story, and immediately we get her cleaning, we get her wishing for a prince at the wishing well, and we get this ultra excessively feminine characterisation. Yes. Um, And there's a particular... uh, fairy tale scholar called Jack Zipes, who's very vitriolic in his sort of engagement with Disney, he sort of sees Disney as sort of uh, conservatising the fairy tale when it never was. Because if anyone's ever read any of these, they're quite punky and edgy and strange and, and, and brash and all over the place. And what we get here is Snow White as sort of the, the archetypal Disney princess, for want of, of a better word. Um, the only thing I'll throw in that is it's interesting that they chose to characterise her. That the, the 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 Snow White character in the original story doesn't have a personality. So we do at least get a scene here where a character is embellished and given a personality, albeit one that's insanely problematic in terms of uh, gender representation. But but it's at least fleshing out in terms of that classical Hollywood give the character a causality, a motivation. It's it's doing its its legwork screenwriting wise. Um, I don't have anything more to say about it than that. But I was I just noted the process of embellishment going on here. Well, I think what it does the the introduction of Snow White for me, it, thinking as a thinking of the film uh, as a sort of space of animated technology. Uh, it immediately establishes the role of sound, but it immediately establishes the role of sound as kind of connected to her. So she is she is sort of cleaning and. We see her on her own, and we see her relationship with with animals, which uh-huh. sort of accelerates and and, and um, exaggerates during the course of the film. The use of sound, where she is singing down the well, and it echoes back. Now, this is this is an important moment within sound film history, and the role of echoes and the role of reverberations that three dimensionalizes the space, this sort of animated space, um, works as a nice analog to the multiplane camera I discussed before. That, sure. that if the what the multiplane camera does visually, the sound helps to, to kind of yeah three dimensionalize the, the space that we're seeing. It does give her a character. It's very brief, and as you, as you said before, it's a scene that we we forgot existed, Um, that she is introduced, she's introduced according to her relationship with the prince as well. Uh, And then it's sort of, we move on, Mm -hmm. we move on. And and so, yeah, 
it's a very short scene, but perhaps it's quite a loaded scene in terms of what it what it does and, and is able to set up. Yeah, I mean, as I said, it embellishes the character in that we don't. It's not just a lovely little princess anymore. It's a princess with an identifiable want and desire, albeit a really sort of patriarchally embedded want yes. and desire. Um, animals. Thank you for mentioning animals. And that's, that's actually where the, the, scene, right. the film goes. Because I, I was thinking about this in terms of right, how does the film create a sense of magic um, and what is often called the atmospheric magic of a fairy tale. So as opposed to sort of modern fantasy stories, fairy tales are rooted in a, in a culture where there isn't much difference between spirituality and rationality, where we're living in a world where, you know, witches and monsters and enchanted uh, spirits are part of our way of seeing the world. Um, and what a fairy tale is, is a sort of replication of that worldview, right? The, the magic and the non-magic are coexisting together. And to me, I'm trying to think where the magic is in this film. And obviously there's the wicked stepmother, um, but she kind of goes in and out of the narrative pretty haphazardly. The one consistent place, I think music's really important, and the other is animals and the relationship between animals. Because as soon as Snow White um, escapes the castle and is let go by the woodsman and runs off into that wood, we get animal-tastic fun coming left, right and centre um, every which way we can. And, and it's like the animal kingdom... Um, is part of this world at every step of the way. Do you have anything to say about animals, Chris? I'm, I have. I'm always talking, I'm always talking about animals, yeah. Alex. You know that. Um, well, I mean, what, I would, what I would add to that is actually the tension that's being pulled out here is all of this, this sort of realism that we are celebrating the film for in terms of its use of technology and, and its, its uh, I guess, its hyper-realist impetus at the same time as we're also trying to look for fantasy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering whether there's a tension here between the role of the film as we see it today as Mark an important moment in the realist gender or possible realist agenda of animation yeah at the same time as we're also saying but where then can and could the fantasy exist and yeah you're right i think the the role of the animals and the 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 role of the animals in helping to define a sense of community and communal activity snow white is very rarely after she's let go from the the um uh, kind of queen's p- p- hold, if you like, or she's let go by the woodsman. She's very rarely seen on her own. Once she collapses in the woods, wakes up, she's almost immediately surrounded, and that tells us something about her uh, character that she is pulling in lots and lots of animals, and ultimately she lives with not one but seven seven men. In terms of animals, obviously the film is playing on a sort of historical tradition of anthropomorphism and the humanization of animals at the same time as them not speaking there's something about the way in which they are being engaged with uh, it also sets in, in motion a template within animation that all horses must behave like dogs <laughs> and that's all i've got to say about that do you, do you, do you, do you want to embellish that point at all or what in what way so uh, I a, a sort of un, unwritten rule within yeah. animation is that horses yes and this is right up until Tangled, so 2010, a, a sort of return to the Disney princess template, if you like, that is prefiguring Frozen, and arguably a better a better film, if, if we want to say that. If you say that, I want to say that, which you did. I, I, uh, and I will stand by it. Um, animated horses tend to act like dogs. Right. So you have the, do- uh, the, the horse in um, Tangled. You also have a couple of the horses in Aladdin. It's sort of a, an, an unwritten... Okay. It, well, it's unwritten. I'm sure it's written down somewhere, but not by me. Yeah. That all horses in animation sort of act and behave like behave like dogs. Okay. And I think that happens in Frozen as well. There's a couple of, of four-legged uh, animals that behave like dogs who aren't dogs. So there we go. That's... So- 
and it's interesting because all these animals are all over the place all the time and they're anthropomorphized, they're um, personified, they're also objectified quite often. I'm thinking of the whistle while you work scene. Yes. There's a lot of animals, but it's sort of what I would call Flintstones-esque gags in that a lot of animals becoming scrub, scrubbing brushes or uh, yeah. mangles or drying racks and things like that. No, I think that's right. I'm certainly now thinking of Flintstones episodes or even the, yeah. the, the recent films where um, prehistoric birds and so forth function as answering machines. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of that, that going on in, in, the, in the tidy up with some while you work sequence. Um, and because you've got all of this, it's interesting you were saying about realism. Maybe there's a way of reconciling this tension we're finding between realism and fantasy. Now, a lot of fantasy scholars would argue that the job of fantasy writing is to present an impossible scenario within and then try to convince the reader to believe in the impossible scenario. Um, a lot of people call it a sort of a very rhetorically excessive genre. It's a genre about trying to use the powers of language to get people to engage with things that don't need to be engaged with because they aren't real. So is there, a, could we argue that we have like kind of almost like a realist rhetoric going on here? That it's sort of like, look how authentic this looks, therefore we engage with the magic. It's quite paradoxical, but it's almost like, I think it would be a mistake to call it a realist movie. It's not a realist movie. It's a, it's a fairy tale, but it's a, it's a fairy tale that tries to be convincing through its visualisation. Well, I think that goes back to... Uh, and I'm thinking, yes, a certain animation scholars, Paul Wells, perhaps the most um, notable, his uh, writing on hyperrealism, Chris Pallant to a lesser extent, his work on Disney formalism, so thinking about the formal principles that underlie issues of hyperrealism and, and sort of ultimately both of those coming together to form what we might know as the Disney formula or classic Disney. Um, what I'm thinking the realism in the film is is not realism at all but is Snow White a film about realism because because animation itself is is rhetorically enunciative is it mm -hmm. about the it, about the things it communicates it is always it is always a comment on the thing that it draws the thing that it animates and so is this this is a film about realist principles in a way that allows the realism to to kind of give a grounding a sort of uh, a foundation upon which the fantasy can then can then build. So then you have a really interesting up and down with the role of fantasy at the start through the book, then the role of realism that is actually being used to undergird the subsequent fantasy. And, and all the way through, fantasy and, and, and realism are, are being exchanged and kind of put in play. You think that you are um, kind of being stabilised by the real and then there'll be a, fa a fantastic interlude where something will happen that will destabilise that foundational realism and get us thinking about um, perhaps the, the animation in a different way. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in where where we see these fantastical interludes, where we see the fantasy. Is it in the musical numbers? Is it in the transformation scene? Um, where do we see fantasy? Yeah, but but, but I would argue that like, with, with all this animalistic sort of imagery going on, it's, it's everywhere. It's just yeah. a slightly different... Uh, format, but it's it's playing with that, isn't that? I'm fascinated by that idea that um, that animation plays with itself in a way. It's sort of it's always about the thing it presents. Yes, um, and I think there's there's some you would find similar people say something about fantasy storytelling. Fantasy storytelling is always about that gap between what it's saying is happening and the re the reality, which is that you know everything that being is presented is self-consciously impossible and unrealistic. Um, I, I don't know that that's that's to think through. I think I'm not sure what, where to go with that, but it's an interesting parallel between the yeah. two the two disciplines. But we left Snow White. She's in a wood. She is in a wood. There's loads of animals around. 
they lead her to the dwarfs. Uh, who aren't there. Crucially, they're not there. Yes. Um, but what they have left behind... But why is that crucial? Well, it's crucial because it allows a kind of double reveal. You have the reveal of Snow White to the audience, but then you have um, the reveal of Snow White to the other characters in the film. The, the characters that meet her first are these woodland are these woodland creatures that sort of bring her to this to this home. Classic student digs. You know, <laughs> it's dirty, it's grubby. There's washing up in the sink. Sure. Of course, there is. Then we have perhaps the uh, maybe the first musical number where it sort of extends as a, as a moment of display. Now you wash the dishes, you tidy up the room, you clean the fireplace, and I will use the broom. Just whistle while you work. Hi guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast. Have you ever wondered why so many animation films are fantasies? Or indeed, why so many fantasy films are animated? Do you know what? I have wondered that. Have you, Chris? I have. Right. And to find out why I've wondered this, why not visit the Fantasy Animation Research Network? It's an online community that sort of looks at these two mediums and genres uh, to see which is the most exciting. Animation is the most exciting. Well, I don't know about that. I think fantasy is pretty exciting to me. But I would go to the website and find out for yourself. That's fantasy-animation.org. Or you can follow us on Twitter at fananimation. Research. If people are doing that these days with their tweets and their and their mobile devices, I think they probably are. Get back to the show. Let's do that. It's not a musical number that she is kind of singing to herself. It's not personal. It's something that's very outward and, and kind of spectacular. And here we see, as you said, the objectification of the animals and. And that obviously tires Snow White out. She falls falls asleep. And then instantly we're back. We get transpo- transported to a mine. Uh, and then, and actually they, I'd forgotten that those two those two musical numbers are so close together. The kind of uh-huh. iconic musical numbers that are aligned really close together. What I like about, and what, well, what I like, what I love about the um, uh, Hi-Ho song when they're working in the mine is again the role of sound and the role of depth and dimension and space and that we we sort of hear the cave as much as we see it. Uh, and then, then there's that little moment where Doc is tapping all of the diamonds, and he knows that the diamonds are good because they sound right. And okay. it's that sort of self-consciousness of sound, which I, which I really like. And and that five minutes, I think, is a real winner, that that transition from Whistle While You Work straight into um, the dwarves working in a mine, I think, is possibly the best five minutes of cinema. Of cinema. <laughs> well, I, think, I, I thought he was about to say of the film, ladies and gentlemen, but no, of cinema. Fine, bold claim. But um, but yeah, I, I, it's it's certainly very striking, and it's not. I don't think it's a coincidence that those are perhaps the two most iconic yeah. numbers from the film when they all happen in that in that moment. And again, we have the the dwarfs are another moment of embellishment, right? In that the dwarfs don't really have distinct personalities in the original um, fairy tale. They don't have names. Um, they're just sort of this sort of vaguely anonymous collective. And I think it's very much a Disney embellishment to give them all these individual personalities um the design i mean the design of the characters is very if we're thinking about the the role of realism realism is very much a, a trait that's perhaps reserved visually to snow white very famously um she was rotoscope so she was she was more human-like i guess in her design and the dwarves, well, rot- for those who don't know rotoscoping is it's uh the tracing over uh, or the use of live action footage really is a reference point. So the tracing over of live action footage to create um, a more realist look to a particular kind of character. Um, 
then you get the dwarves, which are their the colours are sort of very they're very earthy, which befits their their occupation in a mine. But they are really a space of sort of characterization and um, or I guess exaggeration, uh, where you can really they're plays of personality. How do you articulate personality in a name and manifest that through character design? So I think in terms of character design, they are they are sort of rules one to seven of how you can articulate particular emotions, particular personality types, and fold them into to the design of a character. Yeah, and they're all, again, we're talking about um, archetypal characters here. Um, all these dwarfs are instantly, both physically um, and in terms of the way they are animated, uh, presented as stock characters that you can easily digest. And as I say, there's an ideological problem with that because it immediately makes people into certain boxes. But there's also a quite functional reason this is all happening. It's because this is a film in which the storytelling isn't really done much on screen. Or if it is, it's done in fleeting moments. What they want to do is get on with the, the pleasure in being in this sort of this world. So it doesn't really want to give you a, a complex arc for these uh Dwarfs, what it wants to do is is have fun with them trying to wash their hands, which I've got to say, that scene must go on for about 10 minutes of the movie in a 75-minute movie. To about I reckon 10 minutes is, is the dwarfs being told to and then washing their hands, which is frankly bizarre. Like, why is so much of this movie taken up by that? I would also add to that for a, for a group of people that perhaps is immune to washing, they already own a lot of bars of soap. That's a very good point. So good I don't point. know where... Either they bought it in bulk or they're they're kind of stockpiling. I think, but to, to sort of um, to before they wash their hands, yeah. before they before they wash their hands, um, they obviously return. They return to the to the cottage and they see Snow White, or they 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 sort of are aware that there is a presence within the cottage. And then there's a really interesting line or, or an exchange that takes place outside the cottage where the dwarves are trying to think about what it could be. Uh, and they sort of run, give, provide a rundown of potential creatures that it could be. They say, uh, is it a ghost, is it a goblin, a demon, or a dragon? And, of course, they've already sent Dopey in to have a little look and to see, and he thinks it's a, a dragon, but he also thinks it could be a demon. Um, and it's so interesting that the, the, the characters themselves within the film have an idea of, of fantasy as a set of archetypes, as a set of common creatures, as a set of um, characters. So they are already projecting their fears that there is someone in the cottage, and then articulating those fears through an acknowledgement of fantasy's stock characters. Sure. God, I hadn't even struck me that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's really interesting. And then yet, as it evokes all these fantastic possibilities, it then shuts it down, because what we get instead is is, is a girl. Is a human. Is, is a, a, a rotoscope human. Which yes. for these characters are perhaps even more fantastical, and certainly for... I forgot how many misogynistic lies Grumpy says in this movie. Yes. Uh, Grumpy women, women <laughs> is, is is a recurring frame throughout this, and it's it's delightful every single time, of course. Um, obviously not. Uh, so obviously there's some, again, gender issues going on here, and this desire to... Um, make things plain and make things easily digestible. They use stereotypical language ideas, attitudes, uh, problems, which is back to this idea of, of critique. Um, Dopey. Is Dopey fine anymore? Or, or is Dopey a Chaplin-esque celebration of, of a carnivalesque subversion of the status quo? I'm reading from my notes directly, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Dopey. I mean, so first and foremost, if, at the level of character design, he is obviously 
He's obviously designed in a way that is is intended to ostracize him from the rest of the group. So he's and he he's the 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 character who it's not that just he he doesn't speak. He's never really tried, never really learnt. Um, he's obviously sort of very infantile in the way that he is he's constructed. This is sort of nothing new. One of the charges leveled at the original designs of Mickey Mouse was that he is he is obviously very childlike, very kind of rounded in that way. Um, I have just got my notes. Dopey describes the um, fantasy of Snow White and does so non-verbally. He's trying to articulate what that ghost slash ghoul slash demon dragon human is. Um, and then I've got the moment where he's filled with water is, quote, pushing credibility. Um, <laughs> and so through him, you do get, obviously, traditions perhaps of, of kind of, as you say, sla uh, Chaplin-esque uh, slapstick. Um, is he the cell animated Wally? Probably not. But there's something around his his use of, of or the film's use of silence. You know, this is a sound film and, and deliberately a sound film if you think about the synchronised sound of the mirror. Mm -hmm. um, but it also uses silence in really important ways. And he, he is a space where silence is a sort of allowed to be heard in a, in a strange way, but um, yeah, he's 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 he pushes credi credibility. Pushes, we'll, we'll go with that. All right, he pushes credibility. Yes, in all kinds of ways. Yes. So they have a clean up. They they have dinner, and ten minutes later they're ready for dinner. Yeah, they, they have dinner, and then that that's all that's all nice and fun. We then go back to the castle. This is I reckon now. 45 minutes into the movie, yes. I'm going to say a 75, and we haven't seen the Queen at any point, so we get the reintroduction of the antagonist, and I just noted, interestingly enough, we are talking about animals earlier, here again we get rats, we get vultures, yes. we get the, the crow, all enunciating the sort of, almost the fear of the audience, it's almost got like a chorus-like role, if, they, yes. if, the, if the woodland creatures are about articulating Snow White's virtue, this is about articulating the Queen's abjectness, right? The, the, the cowering figure of the crow as she transforms into a, a crow. Uh, see what I did there? That actually wasn't in my notes. Um, uh, is an interesting sort of way of articulating that on screen, articulating the fantasy moment on screen. Well, I think the menagerie of, certainly the menagerie of animals that um, that we see in the film, the, the kind of collection of good woodland creatures that are very much connected to Snow White, mm -hmm. uh, and then the, as you say, the sort of rats, vultures, chorus line that are watching. Um, that role, the role of animals watching Mm -hmm. is something that recurs an awful lot in, in certainly later. I'm thinking of Timon and, and, and Pumbaa in, in The Lion King. They do spend a lot of the film watching things. Um, yeah. They watch uh, Simba and Nala kind of get together. Can you feel the love tonight? It's the, the role of the animals to kind of comment without commenting. They, they watch and they look and they, they can, they sort of, and actually within the frame themselves, you often see the outer ring of the frame, the film frame is populated by these characters that are looking out. So you have birds on branches or um, animals peering over logs and they sort of nicely frame this this window, if you like. Uh, and, and they are, the, in many ways, the surrogate audience. They are, we are watching them watching. So can I ask you an impossible question? If, if only to make me give an impossible answer. Sure, so I think, I'm, maybe I'm speaking on behalf of some listeners here. I think one of the quintessential things about Disney is this the anthropomorphic characters yes and the addition of anthropomorphic characters to a narrative we might already know so one of the processes of disneyfication i think we all are more familiar with is you add a story and you add a comedy animal sidekick and yes. a series of animals 
and menagerie of things. You know, we have Aladdin, but we're going to add a monkey sidekick and a magic carpet sidekick, and that's going to make it more Disney-like. Yes. Where, where did that come from? Is that a thing that Disney established before Snow White? Is it Snow White that's establishing it? Um, and is it a Disney thing? Is it a broader US animation thing? Is there a historical reason? Is there a, a technical reason? Are animals just easier to draw than humans at this stage, so it's easier to make animal characters? I mean, is there anything that you can help us with here? Because it's what, why, why is the instinct of animators to go right? Let's let's add a few woodland creatures to this, and then then we've got ourselves a hit. Well, thanks for that impossible question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that comes in not one but several. Yeah, parts. sure. Actually, um, it's a possible series of questions. Yes, yeah, great. It's got um, a sequel. Um, okay, so. When I spoke earlier about the City Symphonies as this important technological testing ground for various, um, uh, I guess, industrial shifts within the development of the, the American cartoon, it also created a sort of representational template. When we think of, of anthropomorphism, yes, we think of Disney perhaps first and foremost. It is a key. Any scholar who is writing really on, on Disney as an animation studio, perhaps as much as it is a kind of corporation, um, the birth of Disney studies really, or the re-emergence of Disney studies in the 90s, talks a lot about the uh, ideological potential of certain kinds of anthropomorphic characters, animals, and or non-humans that are made to behave in a human-like way or with, with sort of um, recognisable human form, proportion and so forth. This is obviously a tradition that goes right back uh, across um, uh, animation history. So the earliest kind of cartoons, when we uh, think of Felix the Cat, further back we think of Winsor McKay, Gertie the Dinosaur. Um, further back we might think of even something like Emil Cole's Phantasmagory, where you have... Um, a house that transforms into an elephant. So anthropomorphism is certainly, I, I think, certainly a space where the creativity of animation has been has been perhaps um, harnessed most yeah. recurrently, most durably. But of course, the personification of non-human entities goes back across all kinds of traditions, cultures, yeah. um, locations, time periods. There's a there's a sort of you know religious deities there, sure. there's all kinds of of ways in which we ascribe and attribute non-human uh, agency to non-humans as part of a way of sort of making making sense of the world and to recuperate the world into uh, a register or a set of representational orthodoxies that are familiar to us and therefore if they're familiar we can we can make sense of them yeah that makes sense i think i was thinking about that 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 broader legacy of sort of um uh deities with animal faces, animals in sort of fables, yes. all these sort of things. Um, so there is a certain relationship between um, So it's a fantasy animalism. tradition. It is a fantasy, absolutely. It's, it's, it's clearly a way of trying to sort of articulate alternative modes of being or ways of engaging with the world. I like you said about sort of engaging with um, spirituality and, and the idea of fate. Yeah. Um, I, I think, is it yes, the fairy tale, one of the... Um, sources of the word fairy is an Anglo-Saxon word, thaltum, which means fate. Um, and so often we talk about sort of fairy tales as an attempt to agree with fate or get people to engage with fate. So it's a sort of idea of um, the stories of witches living in woods are quite comforting if you don't know what's actually living in the wood. At least it's something. At least it's a way of engaging the world. And perhaps animal animal characters help with that. It's, I mean, it's it's a it's just, it's very interesting, isn't it? Particularly the cutesified animal is so disney um so associated with Disney, it's it's it is interesting how that came from. So if if animation is is a rhetorical medium that, that comments on on the real comments 
um, as kind of a fundamental part of the art, if you like. Uh, the use of animals taps very nicely into that because you can use non-humans, you can use animals as a way of, of indirectly yeah. making certain kinds of claims about certain kinds of, of issues. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is durable and certainly a central core component of Disney feature animation, but, of course, by no means specific to it. Uh, today, obviously, we... we we live in an animation, uh, or, or certainly a series of animated uh, films, where um, they are they are in the business of talking animals, uh-huh. and so it's something. It, it certainly is a tradition that a representational tradition that shows no signs of, of sort of waning. Really, it's part of where animation um, goes creatively. Right. So the woman, the wicked witch, turns into an old woman. She does. She gets an apple. It looks delicious. She takes it to Snow White. Um, Meanwhile, the dwarfs are enjoying a jamboree. Grumby's playing the piano, I noticed. You were writing a lot in that sequence, well, and, I, and, I, and I don't know why. He's playing the piano, and he's a talented musician. They all are. I just Of all the ones to be a talented musician, Grumpy didn't seem to be the most likely candidate. Yeah, Grumpy played the piano, um, and I also noticed that I quite liked the expression. Was it Doc who said it? So they all play a little song, and then they say to Snow White, now you do something, which yes. I just think yeah. was a slightly, uh, all right, okay, fair enough. Um, Admittedly, I mean, she's been on her feet all day so they've been washing up she's been on her feet all day cooking and and making i don't think at that point has she made a she hasn't made a pie for grumpy yet that comes later yeah she makes a pie isn't it? so she's on her she's on her feet grumpy is an interesting character he's the one that has to be has to be one round um and obviously by the end by the end is um no that's a that's an interesting and actually within animation history that musical number is interesting because it was one of the the, the um uh, issues with a later Disney film, Robin Hood, was that it was kind of cobbled together from previous Disney movies, right. um, and so the reusing of cells and the kind of tracing over of cells. So that sequence, that dance sequence, reappears in another guise in Robin Hood, oh, okay. and the character movements are, are very similar. Uh, and there's lots of you know fans that have have created these sorts of online comparison videos where you can see. Um, but it's 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 not just uh, it's it's perhaps. Disney's first song and dance. Sure. I know you get the skeleton dance, but it's the first time where the characters are playing instruments. They are um, kind of dancing with each other and through the space and around the space. So it's a really, it, it's it's a moment of, as you say, it's a, a joyful jamboree. I have nothing intellectual to add to that. My only, my, the rest I scribbled down in, with, with that scene was, um, does she really need all the beds? It looks like she'll fit into three. So this is a reference yes. to the fact that they all go upstairs um, so they let her go upstairs and they'll sleep downstairs. Uh, at best, she needs three beds, but we'll skip over that. And interestingly, we're back to Dopey. Dopey's the only one that works out to get the cushion first. Yes. Um, and then is, is punished by having that cushion cruelly taken away. Yeah, but it's um, right, He finds a feather that seems... Um, <laughs> almost as comfortable almost as a whole as cushion. as a whole cushion. Good. Um, Good luck so to him. They go to sleep. The witch comes... Um, and obviously tempts her with the apple. The animals are all announcing the fear. They're, they're announcing. Recep- they're receptive, and that's that's important. The the, the uh, by this point, I think in the film, the the dwarves have been won over, and you have that whole sequence where they're going off to work, and and Dope is running around the corner to make sure he gets kissed on the head more than once, mm-hmm. um, because because why wouldn't you? Surely. And so they've all been won over. I think even Grumpy at this point, he gets a kiss on the head, is initially resistant, but then we see a moment that she doesn't see and, 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 and all is well. 
they then go off to work and then it's the animals that have this sort of heightened um, sense that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Again, all communicated non-verbally. And that is, I think that is a really interesting way to go with these with, with these animals. Later on, and actually Disney is very good at this, it sort of weaves silence and, and, and speech throughout these anthropomorphic characters. You get, you get, um, uh, animal sidekicks that can that can talk. You get a magic carpet that mimes everything, and uh -huh. and, and so the the animals are cued into what is going to happen, and then they uh, set about trying to. And, th and then we're into the climax of the film. Really. I think we're into the climax of the of the of the the narrative and 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 how all these these elements are going to kind of come together. And it's interesting because she obviously takes the bat bite of the apple, she's poisoned, she falls into this state of, of living death. Stuff you don't see. I love the fact you, she bites the apple, but you don't see that. You just see the hand and mm -hmm. it drops the apple. I think that's a And excellent. then talking about things you don't see, and then immediately after that we get words coming back. And we get words telling a bit of the story yes. and then some more animation. And it's the only part time in the movie it happens. And it's because a lot of information needs to be conveyed. And it's the only time the film feels the need to fall back on captions and yes. words. So it comes up with, and there she lay. They couldn't, they couldn't have the heart to bury her, so they put her in a glass coffin. Um, and we get, we get, you know, none of this is told through the animation. Yeah. It's told through some words on a screen. So once again, we get that. Okay, some storytelling needs to happen here. We better get back to the words. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think of the time frame. Then is 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 it just an ellipsis? You know, is is the is the text being used to denote a passing mm -hmm. of time, a particular period of time, uh, or is it just a quick way of um, kind of providing exposition and giving us what we need without without having to to animate? Yeah, well, I'd argue a bit of both, right? Yeah. And, and the time, as I said, the pacing of this one is very strange in that we have ten minutes of the of the dwarfs doing washing their hands, and I can't help stressing that 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 happened, um, and then we get. An important narrative point skipped over, um, yeah. told through the story, and I think it's because again I've, I really sense this stepping away from the narrative. It's not about the narrative. The animation is about embellishing and playing with and decorating the narrative, but it's not about the narrative itself. If I dare say, it's the illustration, or it's almost yes. a sort of an extra thing. Going well, it's the on illustrations of a book. It's mm -hmm. the it's the, it's the illustrations of a book. We have the book that begins and ends the film. So yeah. it bookends literally bookends the the film. Um, and so are we are we saying that the film is 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 a picture book it's an illustration and an an exaggeration uh, an embellishment yeah. of the fantasy and and it and it does everything that staring at a picture with an imaginative engagement can do and that quite often when at least kids look at picture books they add things to the narrative that aren't actually there they add things to the characters that aren't provided in the narrative um, they they create the story world and this is about that embellishment of the story. What it likes to do is go round the dwarf's house and see all the individual beds. It likes scenes like that. It likes scenes where characters live in the space but don't actually do much in terms of narrative and agency in the space. Um, and it's less comfortable telling the story, which makes for an odd viewing experience because, as I say, and I'll go back to the beginning of the podcast, it feels both too short and too long at the same time because it's full of stuff that doesn't actually matter in a film with quite a lot of plot that is told quickly. So this is uh, an excellent sort of, yeah, an, an inaugural post or podcast, given that we are trying to think about the film through two competing frameworks, both perhaps independently and then together. How is this an example of fantasy slash animation? Yeah. How do we qualify the film by thinking about it as a fantasy film? How do we qualify it by, by thinking of it as an animated film? Um, but then what is it about these two things in dialogue? That are that are helping to to structure certainly the way that we are thinking about this film and many others. And it seems to me that what we, we the, one of the some of the common things we've been getting at here are 
issues of a relationship between technology and storytelling tradition. Yes. A relationship between animation as a cultural force um, and the fairy tale structure. Um, and the, the process of Disneyfication and, and trying to work out what that really means. And perhaps it requires a dialogue between those two things a little bit more to help us really flesh that out a bit. Because I think we are guilty of thinking about those two, two things either as a purely narrative um, force or as a purely technological force. Mm. Um, it's not just that they invented a multiplane camera and that made it look a bit more realistic. It's how that then engages with the fantasy elements of a traditional story tell, story tell, a story, t a, a fairy tale that uh, that that kind of really gets at the complexity of this movie. So there we have it. So there we are. Thanks, yeah. um, everybody, for listening. Um, do tune in at the next one of these, which will probably be in about a month or so, though I won't promise anything at this stage. Otherwise, please do... Uh, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Yes, um, at Fan Anim Research. Fat Ani Fan Anim Research. And then individually, I'm at Freud is Funny. And I'm at Chris Holiday 7. Because you have a sensible name. I do, and there were six others. <laughs> okay, so not the other six, but... Uh, okay, thanks very much, everybody. Thank you, bye. Bye.